Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, April 27th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Governor Bryant is calling the state legislature back to Jackson this summer for a special session to address state budgetary issues. Find out what one senator anticipates as lawmakers prepare. The University of Mississippi Medical Center is honoring the lives of those who've died and donated their bodies to further education and research at the facility. Mississippi is one of the most stressed out states. Hear expert advice on how to manage stress rather than letting stress manage you. And in our book club, making the most of your slumber and what a good night's sleep does for your overall health. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Phil Bryant is calling lawmakers for a special session on June 5th, according to an announcement on social media. The session is expected to address budgets for the Department of Transportation and Attorney General's Office. Republican Senator Buck Clark of Hollandale is chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby the session could be over quickly. I really think this is a special session that could happen pretty quickly if we're just dealing with the budget items that we left hanging, which were funding for Mississippi Department of Transportation, our state aid road program, the attorney general's budget, and then there was another technical bill that dealt with special fund monies that flowed and and really corrected those things. And if we just dealt with those four items, the special session could go by in a day maybe two, but at least in in a day or two. And uh, I don't know what else he might put on the call, but I know we'll have those things on there. The Department of Transportation budget was agreed upon by the House and the Senate. The House protested because of the ideas that were brought as to funding mechanisms for infrastructure improvements. Those ideas were voted down by the Senate. Then the bill was recommitted. I wanted to get your thoughts on how all of that went down. To me, those were separate issues to a great degree. Uh, we've got the annual budget, the uh, about $1.2 billion for MDOT. Everything was agreed upon. And if you look at MDOT's budget, it's really a, a broad budget in that, you know, they collect federal gas tax and state gas tax and, you know, give them a lot of discretion on how they're going to spend that money. And, you know, that's agreed upon. There was no disagreement. It was more on the uh, agreement should there be more revenue coming from somewhere, which to me, again, is outside the spending issue. 
it's it's a more funding issue or additional funding. And uh, and State Aid Road, that's another budget that is tied in with MDOT. That's that's why you have those two appropriation bills. Is it frustrating on the Senate side of things when you have such a large budget for a large state agency in limbo because of a protest by the other side of the building? It is to a certain degree, but it, it does get interesting with MDOT because their their funding comes from those two gas tax sources that's not a part of the general fund. So one of the good things is the debate dealing with MDOT's budget has no effect directly on the other budgets that fund government, you know, dealing with health care and education and the running of government. Uh, I guess that lessens the frustration a bit, knowing that they are separate and, and we're not having something that could have a major effect on all those other budgets. When are state lawmakers going to get serious about finding money to fund infrastructure improvements? That's the uh, $64 million question, I guess you'd say. Everyone is in agreement, I believe. Even I talk to even most the most conservative members of the legislature in agreement with some of the more left-wing members of the legislature, is that when we have state-owned infrastructure, it's a prudent measure on our part to take care of it. You generally borrow long-term money for long-term assets. I look at bridges a lot like that. Then you, you ratchet that down a little bit, and you've got road. General maintenance can be a shorter term. Uh, you might be overlaying in a shorter time frame uh, from one time to the next. And, uh, you know, you don't want to go spend 30-year bond money on something you're going to have to repatch every 10 years. And so, you know, that's where you start looking at at, uh, more of a revenue stream that can cover that. The other part that I think we've we've got to focus on, and we started last summer, we've got to be able to ask honest questions about MDOT's budget. What's the hang-up on the Attorney General's budget? It had nothing to do with his budget. It was just dealing with some settlements that that might come in during the year. As you know, uh, the Attorney General, Jim Hood, has said in the past that this is the first time in a very long time that he hasn't had a budget approved by state lawmakers. What would you say to that? It dealt with that settlement issue. His budget got cut back just like everybody else. I think it's something we'll, you know, the the deposit of the money, everybody agrees the state should know as early as possible, and I I think we can reach an agreement there. Are you looking forward to it? Not really, uh, because, uh, you know, this is something uh, we thought we had tended to and just ran into some problems. However, it's nice to get to Jackson and, and see colleagues and hope we can do the best for the people of the state of Mississippi. Senator Buck Clark of Hollandale, thank you very much for joining us on Mississippi Edition. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate your call. The 2017 regular session ended on March 29th. The new budget year begins on July 1st. Coming up, families rejoice and sometimes struggle with their loved ones' decisions to donate their bodies to medical education and research. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
The University of Mississippi Medical Center staff and students join families to honor anatomical donors each year. The Thanksgiving ceremony is held at UMMC Cemetery and serves as both an emotional experience for loved ones and a reason to celebrate for those who benefit from the educational opportunities. Alan Sinning is professor of neurobiology and anatomical sciences and director of the Body Donation Program. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier having a body for medical instruction is an unparalleled experience. It's uh, invaluable. Uh, This is the only opportunity most of these students will have to really see how a body is made up. I mean, they were right in saying that you can learn the muscles by looking at pictures and all this stuff, but you don't get the three-dimensional relationship. You don't see how it all fits together unless you take a body apart. And if you have someone who has been ill, I'm assuming you can see the disease on the organ or whatever and have a close-up look of what it looks like in actuality. Yeah. The first thing we do is we have the students look at uh, the surface body, look for scars, look for tattoos, things like that, because we want to stress to the students that, that this is their first patient. So they should think about what what these scars mean. What does it mean that they could have had some kind of disease? Did they have, or for example, a gallbladder removed or something like that? And then when they get inside, they can look for some of the things that would be a telltale sign. For example, if you see a scar that would typically think is an appendix removal, do you find an appendix when you get in there? The purpose of the ceremony, what is it? It's to honor the families that have their loved ones have donated themselves. It's to honor them and to memorialize those people. We couldn't have this kind of program. We couldn't provide these services without these people. The issues that Mississippi faces with so many health care challenges, what does this do in, in promoting understanding of illness and research? It helps in that, uh, as I said, the students... This is the only opportunity they're going to get to do this. And I think it's important to think the learning opportunity is just too valuable for the students. It's their first opportunity to really work as a team. And to and they're going to be working as teams the rest of their career. And so they have to learn to get along. They have to learn how to communicate with each other. And there's a lot of things that go on in that lab that is, that is not related to necessarily the cadaver itself, but it's all part of the same thing. Doctor, we just thank you so much for what you're doing. We thank you for your time in explaining this to us. My pleasure. Glad to do it. MPB's Desiree Fraser with Dr. Alan Sinning. First year UMMC medical student John Bobo tells our Desiree Fraser the importance of having a body to study. Well, it's so significant and it's so humbling uh, for someone to give so much so that we could learn and because we're all trying to make Mississippi healthier and um, these donors are the first people who really allow us to care for them. And it's, it, it means a lot. And it really is the first stepping stone to our lifelong learning process. Kind of describe for us what it's like to study and have this three-dimensional body mm-hmm. in front of you to mm-hmm. go by to examine. Well, it's all very regulated, and um, we all felt very prepared. Um, our teachers walked us through everything and uh, uh, really spent the first week just instilling in us how much this means and how much respect we are to have and how um, 
what how big of a sacrifice this was. And so really early on, we began to understand how big of a deal this was. And this wasn't pre-med anymore. This is real people's lives and real people's family members. So. So when you're talking to these folks at the ceremony and you're looking into their faces, what are you thinking about? You know, I was, I, I knew this ceremony would be moving, but I was shocked at how moving it was. I, I was sitting up there up front where the speakers were and looking out in the crowd and, and I would see someone's eyes turn on when a name was read and like kind of watch them really react. And, and I, was, I was overwhelmed by how much this ceremony probably means to them. As much as I thought it would in the first place, it really, it struck me because I caught a couple of people's eyes as like their name was read or their family member's name was read and it was, it was moving. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yes. Thank you. UMMC uses between 100 and 150 donated bodies every year for classes and research. Coming up, you may find help for your sleep problems with author Chris Winter and his new book, The Sleep Solution. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Author Chris Winter has tips for understanding your sleep problems in his new book, The Sleep Solution. He draws on his 24 years as a neurologist and sleep expert to deliver sleep science and time-tested techniques. His book stresses the importance of getting enough Zs and what to do with pills, teas, and even light. In today's book club, Winter tells us what happens when we sleep. Great, great, important things that make our body feel good the next day. We secrete growth hormone that makes us grow, or if we're done growing, uh, makes us our bodies rejuvenate and feel young the next day. We dream, which helps with our mood and our memory and concentration. We get rid of chemicals in our brain that can accumulate to make Alzheimer's disease, and it kind of resets our cardiovascular system and improves the health of our heart, just for starters. My goodness, so if we don't get enough sleep, those things aren't happening? They're not. I know. It's terrible. Got to get sleep. It's got to be a priority. We see articles all the time about how to sleep better and how much sleep we need. Is there a definitive, you must get this much sleep? No. I mean, I think for every individual, there is. The question is, what is it for you? So I think articles do a very good job of talking about averages, which is important. Everybody's different. And I think that when we make too much of averages, it hurts the people who actually need a little bit less sleep. They're a little bit further on the, they're on the left side of the bell curve. So to me, that sets these individuals up for feeling like, oh my God, I'm failing because I'm not getting eight hours of sleep because some TV doctor told me I needed to. If that's the case, how do we determine how much sleep we do need on an individual basis? I think the easiest way to do that is to really take a good assessment of your degree of sleepiness. So one of the things I talk about in the book is looking at yourself in certain situations. A lot of people will say things to me like, I'm fine as long as I'm busy. That's the classic carpenter tells me that right before he puts his truck into a telephone pole. So you should be able to maintain wakefulness when you do relatively mundane things. You should not have to be busy to stay awake if you always fall asleep in church. 
if you always fall asleep and you're the passenger in a car, even when you're driving just to the supermarket, if you haven't read a book in the last five years because you've given up, because every time you open up the book and read a paragraph, you either nod off or kind of lose track of what you're reading about, then that's indicating to me your body's looking for sleep it's not getting. So then the next question is, is it because you're not getting enough sleep or is it because there's something wrong with your sleep? And hopefully the sleep solution will help in a fun way guide you through these sort of exercises to get a better understanding of your sleep and what you can do about it and when you need to get a little bit more help. When changing your mattress is not going to be the the, the cure for your sleep problem. (laughs) If you wake up before your alarm goes off, does that indicate you've had enough sleep? That's a great question. I think for a lot of people it does, or it certainly can. And there again, that early morning awakening, I've got my alarm clock set for 7.30. I keep waking up at 6.45 and have trouble going back to sleep. That's one of the first things I tell my patients is, well, then get up and start your day. Now, if you'd like to lie down, that's fine. There's a lot of benefit to resting. So if you don't want to get out of bed, that's fine too. But for a lot of people, they're very frustrated with that situation. I tell them, look, go with it. You can't make your brain sleep when it doesn't want to sleep. Do you have to get that sleep all in one period or can you catch up or be rejuvenated by a nap? I think it's probably better to get it all in one period, although there have been a lot of very interesting research and essays about, you know, what about dividing your sleep into two periods, you know, sleep for a while, wake up for a little while, and then go back to sleep. So I think a nap can certainly be refreshing. But if you kind of take that argument to its logical extreme, there's a lot of ways to get eight hours of sleep. You can go to bed at 11 o'clock and wake up at 7 and get eight hours. You can also go to bed at 11 and wake up at midnight, uh, be awake for an hour or two, then go back to sleep for an hour and wake up for a couple hours. This is sort of what happened to us when we were in residency. We'd go to our call room, we'd lay down, we'd sleep for an hour, the emergency room would call us, and we'd go down and deal with a person having a stroke, and we'd get that person taken care of, and go back to the call room and fall asleep. Let me tell you something, when you added up those little hour-long sleep blocks that we got through a 24-hour period, yeah, I felt like a Mack truck hit me. Even though if you added it up, it might have been close to six, seven, eight hours. So when you start to really fragment sleep a lot, it doesn't have the impact you lose that continuity of sleep when you interrupt it a lot. So a nap's good. In terms of making up for your sleep, you can do it, but it needs to be in a relatively short period of time. If you had a bad night last night, you need to make it up in the next day or two. Or that opportunity is probably lost forever. I do want to ask, you have in your book uh, about temperature and how that plays a part with your quality of sleep. So do you turn the temperature up or down? I turn it down, so I know there's couples out there all across this country who argue about that. I like it warm, I like it cold. Whoever likes it cold is probably the winner of that argument. A 65-degree temperature is probably perfect. The book is called The Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep is Broken and How to Fix It. And we've been speaking with the author, Dr. W. Chris Winter. Dr. Winter, thank you so much. Very interesting. Carol, I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Have a great day and a great night. Chris Winter has been dubbed the sleep whisperer. Coming up, Mississippi is one of the most stressed states. Find out where we rank. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi is one of the most stressed out states in the country, according to a recent study. Analysts with the personal finance website WalletHub reviewed 33 stress factors across the country, including stress related to work, money, family, health and safety. Mississippi is the third most stressed. The study also found long hours, job insecurity and lack of work-life balance contributes to contributes to at least 120,000 deaths each year nationwide. Dr. Danny Burgess is director of the Center for Integrative Health at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He tells us stress is based on a personal experience. Stress is based on the perception of the person because stress can be very different for very different people. Something in your environment is demanding more than you feel like you're able to address. So it sort of exceeds our ability to adapt to or adjust to a, a certain event in our life. It affects us at the physical level, the behavioral level, emotionally, and it's something that occurs in our life that we feel like maybe getting in our way or maybe threatening our well-being. And so that creates a response. Can someone, as a result of stress, be depressed while somebody else may feel anxiety? Oh, most definitely, yeah. Uh, you know, people have all kinds of different emotional reactions. So for some people, it may bring on a more depressive state or for some, maybe more of a panic um, anxiety state. For some, it brings on frustration and anger and they may act with aggression. To me, it's not so much about what the stressor is, but how we feel in terms of being able to adapt to it. Is stress generally a short-term phenomena or long-term or both? Both, definitely both. And unfortunately, in this sort of day and age, stressors seem to be more chronic and long-term and our bodies are better equipped to deal with short-term stress. And that's when our bodies begin to break down. That's when our emotional well-being begins to break down. And that seems like it's a barrier if someone goes, oh, they're so overwhelmed, they withdraw. A lot of times that's because they take an approach, uh, what's called a problem-focused approach to dealing with the stressor where they're trying to solve the problem, get rid of the stressor. And in a lot of instances, that just can't happen. Some stressors in our life are just going to be there, especially medical problems. So you've got to adjust your approach from problem-focused to more of an emotion-focused coping strategy where you learn how to manage your emotions. You learn how to adapt and adjust to the stressor instead of trying to get rid of it. Which makes great sense. How do we do that? Kind of first and foremost, just sort of the insight into knowing that you need to shift that sort of mindset. For instance, if I've got someone with chronic pain and they're coming to me and talking to me about chronic pain, we shift away from dealing with the chronic pain directly. How do we get rid of chronic pain? Well, in a lot of ways you can't. And so we begin to look at, well, how can you adjust your life with this chronic pain as part of your life? So now you're learning how to adjust and adapt to the chronic pain, sort of incorporating it into your life. And then in a lot of ways, that actually makes people feel better about their pain and be able to cope with it better. It sounds like you're saying, in a sense, you're taking control of your own life. Right. You're taking the focus away from the problem uh, or that stressor in particular and kind of putting it back on yourself and saying, okay, if this is the way my life's going to be with this situation, what can I do to start taking back control over my life? When someone is stressed and they start withdrawing into themselves and they feel depressed and it's almost like being frozen, I guess. Paralyzed. Yeah, I usually say they get paralyzed by it. Mm -hmm. How do you make that transition from that (laughs) paralyzed feeling to actually doing something be able proactive. To be right. Now, that's a great question. When they come to me, they're sort of in this reactive stage. They're just sort of reacting to what's being thrown at them, and they have a hard time getting over that hump to be able to be proactive. And this is where I talk to a lot of the people I meet with about how to transition thinking about stress as a threat and more of a challenge. Because if you see stress as a threat, 
then you're kind of already in this reactive, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to me? How do I react to this? Versus going into it and saying, okay, this stressor is a challenge. How can I go about and be proactive in addressing this? And I start with the most basic of things for people to do. And I always go to pillars of of overall health, emotional and physical health. And I say, tell me about your sleep. Tell me about your eating habits. Tell me about your physical activity. Tell me about your social relationships. And for most people that are that stressed, all those things are out of balance. And so what I'll talk to them about is just making small behavioral changes in those very basic biological needs. That alone, and sometimes it's not, you know, it's not just about the exercise or the changing their eating habits or getting better sleep, even though that does help physically and emotionally, but them feeling like they're making these small behavioral changes brings on a sense of empowerment. And now they're starting to feel a little bit more proactive in dealing with their situation. And it's amazing to see how they then can see their stressors in a different way. When should someone who is feeling stress see a professional? A lot of people just feel like they can handle it. Mm -hmm. And then they realize, you know, two or three years into it, that we have to kind of undo a lot of bad habits and then kind of create these new ones. So it'd be great to say, you know, everyone needs to come in when they think this might turn into a stressful situation. But I mean, I'm under the guise that I think everybody could benefit from some type of counseling and therapy at any point in their life. Dr. Danny Burgess is associate professor with the Department of Psychiatry and director of the Center for Integrative Health at University of Mississippi Medical Center. Dr. Burgess, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. April is Stress Awareness Month. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10 o'clock, it's MPB Season Pass. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition.